Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Hey, Truce Podcast listeners, this is Chris Steren, the host. I just wanted to let you know that we raised $4,300 for the Truce Podcast, which is incredible for a little show like this. Together, we are sending a message that Christian media can be interesting, entertaining, and can ask some really big questions. If you'd like to be a part of making the Truce Podcast, visit trucepodcast.com slash donate. That's trucepodcast.com slash donate. Okay, here's the show. This episode is part of a long series about how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of season three. We're talking about work. I know, Mondays, right? So I thought it would be fun to ask some of my podcasting friends about their work experience. So my name is Neil Matthews, and I host a little podcast called Other People's Shoes. You know, I mean, I worked at Blockbuster, I worked at Schwann's, I worked at Quiznos, uh, for those that remember Quiznos back in the day. My name is Jared Williams, and I'm the host of the Biblical Wealth Podcast. My worst job was my first job out of college. I was a foster care case manager. It was a good learning experience, but definitely a, a difficult job in a, in a lot of ways. I imagine it's probably not easy to go to work every day when you know your heart's going to be broken over and over again. You, you kind of, for, for better or for worse, you become a little, a little hard-hearted. I'm Marcus Watson, and uh, my podcast is called Spiritual Life and Leadership. Uh, I think the worst job I ever had was when I was in like seventh grade, and I got a summer job picking strawberries. It was so hard, that work. And so I, I identify in some ways with the migrant workers who come and do farm work because it is really hard work. Yeah, my name is Chris Sarah, and I host the uh, the Fellowship Podcast. I think overall the worst one that I've ever had was I actually had a job where I had to clean the streets of downtown Sacramento. Okay, so why was that an unpleasant job? Honestly, the, the sanitation part of it, you know, we, uh, again, it was cleaning up after homeless people with the pressure washer. So that means that at, at times um, there's no angle in which you can not get stuff thrown on you. <laughs> Worked for a company called Service Master where they where they clean buildings. Yeah, that's fun. Did you ever find anything weird in any of the buildings you cleaned? Oh yeah, all the time, of course. Those pharmacy pens, you know, the Viagra pens, the doctors would maybe use it once or twice and throw the pin away. And so I would go around when I was dumping the trash and I would take out, this is gross, I would take out all the pins and I would keep them. When I was in high school, my mom's like, do I need to buy you any pens or pencils or anything like that? I'm like, no, 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 mom, I'm good. I got, I got, I got some pens from work. You were going to high school with Viagra pens. Yes, I would sell them to friends <laughs> to make a little extra cash. We had some fun there, but our jobs can be serious business. Work is an integral part of our lives. We spend a huge amount of time there. What do you do when working conditions are poor? The truth is that Christians have a lot of different opinions about work. 
Can a Christian quit their job, stand up to their boss, join a union, or bust a union? The Bible has stuff to say about wealth and labor. Much of it really clear, especially for a simple agrarian society like Jesus lived in. But modern technology, factories, and unions have made things a little murkier. How we Christians view labor conditions, collective bargaining, social safety nets, and all that impacts the way we do ministry and the forces of history. So saddle up, pay your dues, and grab your protest signs. We're talking labor. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Steren, and this is Truce. Many American Christians today believe in bootstrap theology. That if you're down, it's up to you to pull yourself up. If you work hard enough, you can make it in this country. That philosophy makes it difficult for some Christians to support things like unions. They would rather have an individual stand up for themselves rather than have a collective group like a labor union do the bargaining. In times like these, it seems like Christianity has always been connected to capitalism. But with ties to oil companies, presidents who claim the name of Christ who have big business connections, and megachurches being run like corporations. But that hasn't always been the case. Historically, Christians have believed a lot of competing ideas about religion and work. When we left off in our last episode, there were tensions forming between the church and labor. The battle for the eight-hour day in 1867 ended with many in the clergy on the side of the corporate bosses, not employees. That would soon change, but a lot of workers were hurt by this slight. Could working-class people go to church if the clergy were not on their side? Is the Bible with labor or on the side of corporate bosses? To explore these issues, I spoke with Heath Carter. He's the author of the fascinating book, Union Made, and an editor for several others, including The Pew and the Picket Line. He also teaches at Princeton University. You know, workers and the labor movement in this era often cited the Bible, actually, as evidence for their view. I mean, they they would quote the, the line in the Gospels where Jesus says that the laborer is worthy of his hire, or they... Uh, love to cite a passage, you know, if you if you know James five, the beginning of of that chapter, a really intense denunciation there in the fifth chapter of the book of James of exploitation of of workers. Here is the beginning of James five from the New American Standard. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Passages like that became 
some of the building blocks of the early labor movement as as people really felt like the churches, the fact that they were so reticent to support working people, it just seemed to them like they had gone astray. Meanwhile, wealthy Christians like John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, both churchgoers, treated their workers poorly. So it seemed lopsided. The guys doing the abusing were getting approval from the clergy, but the people being abused were not. One view of wealth and poverty is that God blesses those who follow him. And if you're poor, it's because of your sin. D.L. Moody is a good example of someone who held this view. Moody was maybe the most popular evangelist in the late 1800s. He tended to ignore the idea that great social forces could cause poverty in some and wealth in others. Instead, he saw wealth as a sign of God's blessing on an individual, and poverty as sin manifesting itself in people's lives. He held that view even after a financial crisis in his time left 50,000 men out of work. He said this at a meeting in New York City in 1876. I do not believe we would have had these hard times if it had not been for sin and iniquity. Look at the money that is drank up, the money that is spent for tobacco, that is ruining men, ruining their constitutions. God has blessed this nation, yet men complain of hard times. He believed that if you followed God, you would have material wealth. But to his credit, Moody denounced the urban congregations with pew rents that we talked about last episode as aristocratic clubs for the few rich and respectable. And at a revival meeting, he allowed the poor to come in first and select their seats instead of allowing the rich and powerful to have first choice. There is a lot to admire about Moody, his commitment to evangelizing the poor, his help with the YMCA, But one could argue that his view on what makes some people rich and some people poor was a little basic. He was just one public Christian, though. There were lots of others. Guys like Henry Ward Beecher, a celebrity pastor who subscribed to social Darwinism. In other words, the philosophy that superior beings will rise to the top while inferior people remain poor and miserable. It's a nasty philosophy because it only works for you if you're successful. It ignores those stuck at the bottom. It ignores systems that keep people poor. This is an edited excerpt from the Daily News. I am trying to live the life of a Christian, but when I look at my bosses who are members of the Christian denomination, I shudder and wonder how they can impose upon us poor miserable creatures throughout the week. And Sunday, you will see them out with their coachman in fine span of horses, going to church, while thousands like myself are plodding along, footsore and hungry. I do not believe in these strikes at all. I have submitted my case to the proprietor personally, asking for a promotion or more wages. And the reply was, if you do not want to work for what I am paying you, there are thousands who will. Doesn't that break your heart? I mean, he believed in the right of a person to bargain for their own pay, but was stuck because the market was saturated with workers. He had no leverage. The problem with the cream rising to the top theory is that it ignores social constructs that can hold people down, and market forces that create gluts of unemployed people ready to do your job for less money. 
tie that into the church not having your back and you're in a tight spot, you might feel the need to discover new options, get creative, look to other economic models. That's exactly what many Christian workers did. We'll continue our story after these messages. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. With all of these competing ideas about work, some new approaches emerged. Here again is Heath Carter. You get, in addition to the kind of uh, biblical witness, you get the emergence of a new tradition of Christian social teaching. And so, it, you know, one of the big moments here is 1891, you get the, the Pope in the Vatican releases a new encyclical called Rerum Novarum. And one of the big deals about that was, was and it's still cited oftentimes today in conversations about the church and labor, Rerum Novarum, the, the Vatican stakes out a really interesting point of view on this question about freedom and contracts and whatnot, and basically says, and this was kind of counter to a lot of um, elite Christian views at the time, that it's not enough for there to be a seemingly free negotiation between a worker and an employer. There's something more basic even than the freedom of that negotiation. And, and the Pope argues it's the, the worker's right to a living wage. A living wage, enough for a person to thrive on, feed a family, provide shelter, schooling, and clothes. That was the challenge thrown down by the Pope. That was one Christian approach. There were many more. Amidst unspeakable working conditions, child labor, and growing inequality, a chasm emerged between churches of the upper class and denominations that served the poor, creating organizations like the Salvation Army, Christian Socialist Fellowships, and labor temples, which were essentially churches owned by unions. Instead of fancy clothes and carriages, these meetings required no pew rents and no good-looking duds, rejecting what some called churchianity. One such movement was the Knights of Labor. You know, we can now look back and critique the early labor movement because in all too many cases, it was, it was led by working class white men who didn't want women in their unions, who didn't want black people in their unions. Um, the Knights of Labor was an exception. And, and it's a fascinating exception. It's a sort of early version of that big tent union that labor had often sought but struggled to build, where regardless of your skill level, regardless of your nationality, regardless of your race or gender, 
the Knights of Labor, as long as you were what they called a producer, namely someone who was um, making things, and they, they had a pretty broad definition of that. A lot of pastors actually joined the Knights of Labor. They were considered producers. The people who were not producers were bankers, uh, financiers, people who were, in the view of the Knights of Labor, sort of parasites on the economic system, just sort of drawing off the things that other people were making. But the Knights forged a really powerful, broad-based diverse coalition and in that coalition part of what you find is this deep strain of christian conviction that said that jesus was a carpenter and you know churches that sort of sign off on the wall street way must have lost their way because jesus was a producer himself the knights of labor are just one example of a christian socialist movement in that era Christian socialists fought an uphill battle. First, because Christian socialism was tied to the immigration debate. Socialism grew in popularity at the same time that European immigrants poured into the country. And Europe wasn't exactly a stable place at the time. In 1871, the Paris Commune briefly took control of Paris when a group of proletarians set up a short-lived government based on socialist ideas. This attempted coup was a bloody affair, upending the social order of the country. There were fears in the U.S. that something similar could happen here, stoked by concerns that the U.S. was losing its character and possibly capitalism. So Christian socialists had to fight that uphill battle. And some of them did that by looking to the Bible. They're interested. They're talking a lot about what they called apostolic socialism. The, you know, these passages in Acts where it seems like the early church held all things in common. They sold their possessions and gave the money to the poor. Um, that vision of apostolic socialism has a lot of credibility in, in these circles. He's referring to Acts 2, 44 to 45, which says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Some hear that and think socialism. People sharing what belonged to them. But is that socialism, though? It breaks down a bit when you consider that what they were doing was voluntary and not mandated by the government. Also, their community didn't own the means of production. Were they being charitable and setting an example? Yes. Does it fit our shape-shifting definition of socialism from earlier in this season? No. But you can see how you might get there if you wanted to. Socialists were just one piece of the pie. There were other labor movements that championed the rights of workers. Some were led by conservatives like the Trades and Labor Assembly. You have in this period, and, and part of what makes this period so interesting to study, is there is a real way in which the nature of economic life more generally is up for grabs. And, and so you have in this period the, the emergence of real radical labor reform as well. People who are saying, look, we think capitalism is fundamentally corrupt. We want... We want to overthrow this system and replace it with socialism or anarchism or, or you know, insert other isms. And place, you know, groups like the, the Trades and Labor Assembly would have seen those radicals as just as much the enemy, maybe more so, as corporate 
folks. So, you know, they're, they're sort of positioned in between and that's their strategy. And, and in many ways, when labor movements change the church's mind, it's these conservatives that really win the day. They're the ones who um, the churches come to see as the kind of reasonable actors in the world of labor reform. And they're the ones who are going to get the platform and going to see a lot of their concerns brought forward into kind of wider church life. There were lots of different groups, capitalists, socialists, social gospelers, anarchists, each with their offshoots. By the turn of the century, according to Professor Carter, labor movements started to gain respect among the major denominations. Attitudes shifted, but that took a lot of work. We can't go into every conflict, every march, every struggle that these different groups went through. Some were bloody affairs with shootings and destruction of property, and others were civilized. One such peaceful protest was the result of the Long Depression starting in 1873, when the Jay Cook & Company bank went under because of bad investments in a railroad. The protest in Chicago involved 10,000 people who marched in silence to City Hall. A lawyer at the head of the group then delivered their petition to the mayor and city council members. Contrast that to the reception crowds received at the Winter Palace in Russia a few years later, when guards fired on the protesters. The United States and Russia were traveling in parallel directions at this time. Both empires, both struggling to reconcile labor issues in an industrial age, both experiencing an influx of new social and economic ideas. So it's no wonder that one of the big events that determined the direction of the United States was the 1917 Russian Revolution, when the Romanov dynasty was ousted and, shortly thereafter, Russia became the first communist country in the world, beginning the persecution of millions of people, including Christians. Before the Russian Revolution, communist, socialist, and anarchist ideas were more mainstream in the U.S. But once Lenin seized power, these competing ideas took a back seat to capitalism. Part of what happens, I mean, after 1917, there's a big... Um, backlash against both immigration in general. I mean, the 1920s are often talked about as a kind of period of, of rising nativism. You get the, the passage in 1924 of a really restrictive immigration bill. And this is the kind of final triumph of a movement that had been building since the 1880s. Um, but partly it's certainly driven by this, you know, notion of, of communist revolution across the ocean. So you get a backlash against immigrants, you get a backlash against labor and um, certainly radical organizations um, that existed at that period. Because our enemies, once we entered the Cold War, were communists. That allowed people who liked capitalism to dig in and eventually tie their belief in free markets to Christianity. I mean, when a nation is killing millions of religious people in the name of communism, it's hard to mark yourself as a communist or socialist. Let's go back to the beginning of this series, with the people of Russia marching on the Winter Palace, demanding better working conditions from a supposedly Christian emperor. The whole reason communism gained a foothold in the country and then spread that idea to others is because the powers that be refused to have compassion on the little guy. 
all of those deaths, the persecutions, the wars, our issues with China, the Soviet Union, the buildup of our nuclear arsenal, the Cuban Missile Crisis, all of that could have been avoided if employers didn't pay attention to what the market would let them get away with, but instead paid a living wage and improved working conditions. Really, many of the major world issues in the last hundred years could have been avoided if individuals had just done right by their employees. That's why labor issues matter. If we don't treat people with respect and allow them to thrive, we should expect a response. Because the Russians did not support their people, they went communist. And in reaction to the revolution, a movement formed in the U.S. to tie Christianity to capitalism. And in the meantime, you have, in that same period, a very, very significant investment on what, in what historians now kind of call the, the gospel of free enterprise, the idea that God sanctions the free market, that God blesses kind of distinctly modern forms of capitalism as the the Christian way or the, the God-given way to do business. We'll be covering the history of that push to tie Christianity to capitalism in the coming weeks. As for this episode, we're stuck with a lot of questions. What is the Christian response to labor practices? Can Christians belong to a union? Is there a godly way to ask for a raise? What do I do if my boss asks me to do something I think is dangerous? There isn't one easy answer. So that's one of the things I would say for people who feel just kind of lost in the conversation is that sometimes um, reading up on the ways that Christians in earlier periods have navigated these questions can be helpful to us. Um, and that's that's certainly something that going way back to Augustine and before people have said, you know, really one of the, you know, the Bible is, is huge. And it's also really important for us to understand how other people have read the Bible in, in church history. And, and so I think that's one of the things that I always like to say to people when it comes to this stuff is, is uh, look to that cloud of witnesses too, and, and see what they might have to offer you. We have to look to the cloud of witnesses, that diverse group of believers who struggle to have their voices heard. We can still hear the echoes of their fight today, when low-wage workers at places like McDonald's protest the lack of protection against COVID-19. These debates are alive and well. Will we as Christians look out for the underdog? And let's dare to ask the big question, is the working class welcome? in our churches. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these topics. Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to me at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. I may even use it on the show. Special thanks to Heath Carter. His books again are Union Made and The Pew and the Picket Line. There are two other books I've used a lot for reference in this series. The first one is One Nation Under God by Kevin Cruz, and the other is The Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald. Thanks also to the podcasters who told me their stories. We weren't able to hear from all of them, but here they are. Chris Sarah of The Fellowship Podcast, Jared Williams of The Biblical Wealth Podcast, Neil Matthews from Other People's Shoes, Jasmine Campbell of Inspiration Radio, and Marcus Watson from Spiritual Life and Leadership. 
the other voices you heard were from Eric Nevins of Halfway There and Kale Nelson from Modern Christian Men. This show is listener supported. If you'd like to donate to keep this project going, visit trucepodcast.com slash donate. Are you looking for a way to help Truce? My goal is to reach 1,000 downloads per episode by the end of this summer. I'm a long way from that goal, but you can help by taking out your phone right now and sharing this show with your friends. Really, every share makes a difference. Thanks for listening. God willing, we'll be back with more in two weeks. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce.